you know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Passell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker. And my first feature film, The Alternate, will be coming out to the masses on September 13th. Yay! I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer. I've made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life, and I'm in development on a smattering of others. I'm a distribution consultant who does sales, and I used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative. This week, we welcome filmmaker Christopher Coppola on the show to talk about what it's like to be a Southern California Coppola. And we also talk with him about making genre films for 20 years and the different ways his movies have been funded. After that, we have an article from Deadline featuring director James Gray's take on big budget movies and why studios should be willing to lose money on their art house divisions. But before we get into that, Ulrich, how are you? I'm doing good. You know, it's it's been interesting. Like this last week, I've had a lot more time than I did in the previous like three weeks. And so, you know, I feel like, yeah, I'll get so much done. I'll write all these things and all this stuff will happen. But it's like you just, you just get sucked up with work. You get sucked up with family stuff and you just get sucked up with like life things. Like I've got to pay this bill I forgot about or, oh, my car needs to be fixed. I've got to find this part and order it and get it shipped to me. It's like, you know, stupid stuff like that. Although, you know, so I haven't really been working on the script I w- want to be working on. Although I am reading a script. I'm a part of this thing for the, uh, what's it called? The good old friends of ours, the ISA. Ooh. I'm reading a script and giving a call as like a prize for somebody who won a contest Aww. for a genre, a genre script thing. So I'm reading this script and it's it's been really interesting. And like the script is very much like nothing I've read before and pretty much not the kind of movie that I would like make myself, you know, but very interesting. And it's like, I have a lot to say to this person and, you know, I'm really interested to have the conversation, which should be happening in a couple of weeks. But yeah, I mean, I have this movie that I want to write and it's just like, I think about it every day. You know, I'm like, I have all these ideas. I'm like really excited about it. And then I just, there's no time for it. I'm like, okay, I can barely get my walks in this last week. You know, I've been walking Usually I go on hikes, like, you know, and on trails near me, like, you know, five, 10 minute drive away. But like the last couple of days, I've just been walking in my neighborhood, just taking my daughter, like throwing her on my back and just walking around the streets, waving at neighbors, which is better than nothing. You know, I'll take it. Last thing going on with me, I just started watching a new show. I'm actually watching a lot of new shows, but the one that really stood out to me, I just started last night. It's called We Own This City. Have you heard of this thing? No. It's from from the Wire creator. <gasps> Or creators, and it stars John Barenthal as a Boston police cop who uh, is not necessarily uh, the good cop he thinks he is or says he is. So it's all about this investigation, internal investigation to the Boston police force and this uh, this terrible behavior that these cops are, you know, exhibiting. So very interesting stuff. Very cool. Well, anyways, how are, how are things going with you? That- that's like a dream television show, actually. Like it's from David Simon <laughs> or who are, or other people yeah, from the yeah, Wire. Yeah, David Simon. And John yeah. Bernthal. I mean, like, oh, that sounds really, really ideal, actually. I'm going to have to put that on the list. Uh, we went home for one day <laughs> and came back. And in the space of the two very long car rides, I talked with Sean about the horror feature that I'm writing with Amy Taylor and it kind of got on. Un- unraveled like like you know i've been talking about this lately where i'm talking about how the foundation of that film feels shakier than it should and questioning like what are we really writing what's the point and what's the goal of the story and 
what are we trying to say? Asking ourselves all these important questions. And I've been feeling really like the story and the script has, and the project itself has been unraveling to the degree that I was about to jump ship. And then I talked to Amy this morning and she's like, no, what you're feeling is really normal. It's so normal. Like we still can solve these problems. It just made me feel 10 times better. So I'm just thinking about what you said about how you not having time to write is like, you didn't say it, but it's kind of making you sad. And I'm, <laughs> I, I feel like me not being able to get to the core of the film I want to make is making me sad. And it's really interesting how these story problems or, or our ability to work on our projects can really impact our day. So I'm just thinking about that and how we're both going through that right now. Yeah. Finding the good core of a story is hard, you know, because like, yeah, I think that's what needs to survive besides ever, b- b- beyond everything. And there's definitely times when I was writing my last movie where like, I didn't know if the core was good enough, you know, where you're like, is this, is this worth it? Like, does this make sense? And then like, you kind of have to strip away like the things that aren't working in order to, 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 to know, like, is the core good, you know? And I think it took me like probably two or three years to figure out that the core was good. And then it was like, okay, well then I'm going to, I'm not going to give up on this. I'm going to keep working on it and spend more and more time on it, you know, but I feel that it definitely can relate to that moment where you're working on something and then it, uh, it starts to unravel and you're like, does this make any sense anymore? You know? And then what I ended up was like, oh, well, the story still makes sense, but like this, this tangent, this other wrapping for the story that you, that you thought was so genius and so cool and, it's going to really set it apart and make it so amazing. Well, that was the problem, not the core of the story. So like get back to the core of what you're writing. That's the exact word is tangent. That's like the perfect, uh, we have too many tangents. And I think there's something to be said for the expression, if you're going through hell, keep going. And, and like, whatever, writing a script, I'm not going through hell. Things are not that bad. <laughs> but Amy was really, really smart and saying like, we have to just power through and then we can fix it. But don't abandon it right now. And then she started talking about all yeah. these people who get scared off by the process that we're in, just like you did last week, Ulrich. And they give up on their film and then they never write it. And so, like, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to keep writing. And then it sounds like just around the corner for you is going to be some time for you to write as well. Right. And then it's- I think I think so. Yeah, I think so. I think it's just like the first week of a project is always the hardest. And, you know, I think once this gets up and rolling, it'll be it'll be pretty, pretty easy. So, yeah, I think there's there's definitely time, you know, and no updates on my movie project. Just. Friendly reminders that there that it's you know that things are still happening and that we'll know soon you know that's what I've been hearing so we'll see but I'm gonna I'm gonna poke them again today see what they say poke Tuesday's a good poking day Monday's always really intimidating for a poke can't poke on a Monday Mondays are bad poking days but two days Tuesdays are forgivable and encouraged yeah what we also want to poke you about <laughs> is to donate to our Patreon. So if you head to www.patreon.com slash MMIH podcast, it's where that you, our, our listener, our friends, our family can support our show directly and keep us going. Uh, honestly, a dollar is really, really meaningful. It sounds very silly, but a dollar is $1 a month. That's $12 a year. That's $12 that Ulrich's not paying for the show. That's $12 that goes to our editor. That's $12 that is directly feeding into how this show gets made. We also want to encourage everyone to check oh, out... Pl- oh, plus, sorry to interrupt, yeah. Liz, but you can also, if you put that $1 in, you can hear Liz, Eric, and I talk about movies and talk about 
like how the show is actually made and like what work we put into this thing to keep it going. Cause we do our, we put our, our weekly meetings up on Patreon for all our Patreon patrons to listen to. So that's just one of the bonus features, bonus content you get when you become a Patreon patron. So don't forget there's, there's some spoils for you with your $1. <laughs> also don't forget to check out jambox.io a new royalty-free music and SFX company with an emphasis in high-quality cinematic cues. The composers have worked on soundtracks for Hollywood-level films, working with directors like Michael Bay, Martin Scorsese, global brands like DJI. We want you to check them out, jambox.io. And without any more further delay, here's our chat with Christopher Coppola. Let's just start talking about Torch. You know, Christopher, it sounds like this is a good one to talk about. So, well, well, well it's really not by it's not by itself a good one to talk about, but I will talk about it. Okay. You know, after I did my uh, last feature, which was a big, big budget, which was not supposed to be a big budget movie, it was around nine million, and I don't like that. You know, it's I had a it was union, I had a crew of one hundred twenty five people. It was a little rubber monster movie with some TV stars like you know, Bernie Coppell and Frank Gorshin of The Riddler and Wonder Woman and not big name leads. And it should have maybe only cost, you know, maybe two or three million, which I know sounds like a lot, but it, it, it you know, it, it is. It is a lot. But uh, not compared to what everybody else is spending. You know, what's considered a low budget film. What's considered a no-budget film in Hollywood is five million. Anything five million or under is a no-budget film. Just so so you know. upsetting. Yeah, it is. But uh, I prefer the gorilla part. I, I'm more happy doing that. And, and but anyhow, but getting back to uh, that movie, it was shot with uh, the first major HD cameras, the Sony uh, Cinealtes with Panavision lenses. And we were sort of testing them out because I was known as the guy that said film is dead on several panels, HD Expo. <laughs> and I had great cinematographs for me. And this was before things were really going digital. I said, Bart, you know, film is dead. Uh, you're going to have to learn how to deal with this new technology. And are you still writing a script on a typewriter or on a computer? I mean, let's just call a spade a spade. I said, you're going to have to deal with this. So you better start learning. And to bring your storytelling and your, your, your old-school analog expertise to this new type of uh, cinema, which is now everywhere. <laughs> so I was right. Hardly anybody's doing any solo, and it's too expensive to make. And if you consider the fact that, you know, any time a film was screened in a theater, you had to replace it after like a week because of scratches and people paid money. You don't have to do that with a high-end digital DCI, DCP, whatever it is. Yeah. I, I don't remember. But anyhow, I, I did that movie and it went up. To, it was probably bigger than Apocalypse Now in terms of how much over budget it went. And we went four <laughs> months, literally four months, out in the desert, a rubber monster movie, out in the desert, 120 degree heat. But I had a woman that sued me because I was using the term Digiflix because I felt this was going to be the future. But we're talking... 2000. We're talking 22 years ago. And I said, this is going to be the future. Kids, people are going to get their, their little Canon XL1s. They're going to make these movies for 20000 or less. You can make a movie for 2500 you know. You can't get actors. 
And if you're going to try to do something, you should probably get actors, depending depending on what type of film you're making. But uh, I said, look, you do a slate of these, you know, 20,000 or less, all genre, because genres, if you find the right audience, you know, you could put it in there and maybe get some money back. I mean, uh, you know, people want to make a little money back from their hard work. And it's not easy, okay? It's very rare, very, very rare that you're going to make some money back. Maybe break even, but very rare. But the, but, but the lower the budget, the, the better the chances. If you have actors, then it's possible, you know, to make, make something. But you got to be, you got to be an entrepreneur too. You have to be a business person and a producer and a, a, an artist director. You got to know these things before you even consider making a movie if you if you're wanting to make some money back if you get money from outside places you tell them look it's it, it, the, the worst risk in the world is to green light a film the chances of it making money is worse than vegas odds you do it because you love it all right and so you tell your investors look i'm telling you you know every once in a while there's a breakthrough like you know blair witch or whatever the hundred but the chances, you're, you can be hit by lightning before that happens. So you do it because you love it. And so you're taking the risk. And, you know, you can white it off. you got plenty of money, and you'll make more money whiting it off. So what difference does it make? And so, yeah, you got a point. you got a point. And then you can bring your grandkid to the set. You know, they get to shake hands. And that's fun, right? Yeah, well, that'd be great. So you, you, you gotta got to realize all this stuff. First, got to be willing to to want to do it because you're passionate about it you got to be willing to know that you're not going to make any money from it that's difficult it's a difficult pill to swallow but not so bad for you guys because i'm talking tangents here i'll get back to the, the <laughs> rubber monster movie <laughs> you know when i started out i was 25 when i made my first feature for dino de Laurentiis right out of art school in a way, I got Francis beat because I was 25 and he was in his 30s. <laughs> yeah. The deal is I came out of an art school, experimental music, experimental cinema, and I wanted to do long form. And that's expensive. Okay, this is celluloid. I, mean, I did a lot of short experimental films. You know, got, you know, worked with Stan Brackage and you know, George Kuchar, who was my teacher, and a lot of great you know, experimentalists. But I wanted to make long form films and uh just didn't have the money to do that and at that point my brother the movie star was just kicking off with uh, valley girl you know he came the next step up even though he was in some of francis's movies beforehand and he said you, you, you got to be just going to hollywood you know this is you can't do these you, know, you got to make your long form films and and at that point you know i was sort of being tailored uh, sophia was just a little girl and i I was like the Coppola that I was actually coming out of film school. And so it was kind of being tailored, which I really didn't like that idea. But I said, uh, yeah, I want to do this. Uh, Dino De Laurentiis. And I guess if it's a horror film, I could be kind of artistic about it. As long as it's scary, it was more funny than scary, which was somewhat intentional. I realized in the old days that you would make a movie from the 70s on. And, and uh, we'll get into the little micro budgets later, but this is where I started. People would sell out. They would do whatever the producers told them to do because if they didn't, they wouldn't get their next film, all right? And so it, the 70s was the last time that the directors had all the power and you had so many great films out of the 70s. Francis's films, Scorsese, even Spielberg, you know, with uh, 
the one about the truck duel. But anyhow, this was the last time. So everybody after that realized that, man, if I don't do this and it doesn't sell, I'm going to be sitting on the fence. That was then. And then the digital thing started happening. So, you know, this is just a whole other ballgame now. You know, a young person can figure out the business, figure out what story, what to bring to the table, have a group of people that they work with. And you never know. There might be, but you're passionate about it. Like the freaking brilliant film um, about the time travel. It was $10,000. What was that called? Oh, Primer. Primer. What a, what a terrific film. And I remember being at the Independent Spirit Awards because I'm in the Directors Guild and I was part of the Independent Film Committee, which I don't know why other people were like, I like Soderbergh. But, you know, he makes big budget movies. This is independent film committee, you know, people. So I'm at the Spirit Awards and Primer is up there, but so is Crouching Tiger. And Crouching Tiger wins. I go, how is that possible? It's a $50 million movie. You know, well, it's still independent. That that doesn't mean anything. Just because it's not Hollywood, it means that it's independent. I mean, this is a $10,000 movie. It's brilliant. That's what you're dealing with, even in the independent world. You're dealing with that. So I started thinking, well, why not come up with a whole new idea called Digiflex that are not trying to look like film, but they're just using digital to tell these stories. I will do the first one, which was Bel Air, which was my Sunset Boulevard anti-comic Hollywood movie. I got some great people to be in it. Lou Rawls, the, the, the woman from Mission and Barbara Bain, the one that my brothers and I had a crush on in the first Mission Impossible. <laughs> She's terrific actress. And then a few others. But... The idea was to let that grow and have young people come in and small crew. That one was 20000 but we were starting to think, well, God, we can send these kids out and do one, like Roger Corman, but, but films that had more, you know, I love Roger Corman, don't, don't get me wrong, I'm just doing George Pichard, but films that had a little bit more something to say, maybe, that might be both inspiring and, and question-marking. Not that I don't like, you know, Attack of the Giant Leeches. I mean, that's a very healthy, healthy kind of filmmaking for me. And I, I draw from both Open City by, uh, you know, the great Italian neoist Rossellini, and I also draw from Attack of the Giant Leeches. Or Ed Wood. I love Ed Wood. All right. So I, I, I draw from both these. Uh, sacred and profane is how I've been described as a filmmaker myself. But because I was using this term Digiflex, I started getting these emails like, cease and desist, or we will come after you. And I'm like, what the hell is this? I trademarked it. A government gave me the trademark, Digiflix. And the government made a mistake. They let two people trademark it. And so I was getting sued. It just was a, I hate that. You know, what? So I kept saying, it's a waste of everybody's time. People think maybe my family will defend me. No, they don't. I, I've had to go out and raise my own funds. Actually, it was harder to work for my family as a director than anybody else. <laughs> That's a whole other story I could tell you, where I nearly died a couple times on a film I did for Francis. And if it wasn't for my bro- brother, Mark, saying, you know, he's got chicken pox and it's 20 below zero. What are you doing? Trying to kill him? And he, and he goes, can you just let him? He goes, well, I'll get him, a, I'll get him a warm tent and he can direct from the tent so that we, the show goes on. He goes, you're going you're gonna to kill him. You want to kill him? So yeah, it, it's tough. Okay, so let's forget that aspect of it. I mean, I've learned a lot for sure, and I, I respect everybody. But I am—I do my own thing, and it's caused me all kinds of issues. But that's who, what I do. We all have our own cross to bear, so to speak. So anyway, I get these these calls, and I only have fifty thousand dollars frivolous lawsuit through my little company, Plaster City, which I created in nineteen. 19- 
95, and it just made 10 movies, and I raised the money for them and distributed. One made movie, one made some money, you know, some, and actually when we paid some of the deferments that people couldn't believe it, post I said, you really paid me something? I said, I know it never happens, but yeah, here you go. So just so you know, when you get deferment or you say points, that means nothing, okay? You're doing it because you want to do it, and you're doing it for the $100 a day, okay? Because you're with a team, and you can go buy dinner, and you'd rather do that than work at McDonald's. I mean, that's that's kind of how you have to go into this. Hollywood, when they make a billion dollars in film, they say they still didn't make any money, and they don't pay their stuff, so you're dealing with that. We are telling the truth. I mean, we're like, yeah, we made a little money, so here, you know? <laughs> That's what you do, right? But that's uh, that's different. So I had $50,000 worth of frivolous lawsuit money. I had a friend that was an attorney. And I said, okay, okay, let's, let's, they don't know. They don't know that I don't have my family backing every move I do. They don't know. We don't tell them anything. So they might assume that and get scared. I found out that they have pockets so deep that they could write a check for $100 million and it would cash. That's not something my family could do. Okay. So I'm like, oh, shit. And why are they suing me? Because of DigiFlix, because you trademark and they said they had it. I said, well, what do they do? They own these coils of electronics. And I said, are they really making movies? No. I looked at what they did. They were selling DVDs, but it was all bull crap. And I said, but we're doing something. It's in the newspapers that I made a DigiFlix. It's been talked about my idea of film is dead, and now we're moving into this new electronic cinema that is a great equalizer that gives more people an opportunity to, 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 to work, to learn, to develop. You're only as good as you're, you keep working. The more you do it, the better you are. I mean, in the old days, you know, John Ford was one of the greatest directors. He made 300 short movies. It was part of the machine. Of course, you're going to get a little better each time. You know, it's harder. But now you guys can do it every day. You can make a one-minute movie on your, your cell phone, which is what I teach. Back to DigiFolks. <laughs> So I just said, I'm sick of this. I'm going to write a letter. I got this really nasty, vicious letter from this woman. And I wrote back and said, what? I'm just, again, I'm just a little filmmaker. I mean, you might think I'm that, but look at my movies. Look at me. I'm not Francis. I'm not, I'm me. Okay, here, I'm coming up with this idea. And uh, I said, can you just, you can have it. You can say, I could care less. You can have DigiFlix. I don't know what you're doing. I, I could care less. I just, I'm just making movies. And so I get another letter from this woman and said, okay, look, you give us something on your dime uh, that talks about digital evolution because we're really into digital distribution of films, secure digital distribution of films. And we would like you to do something about revolution. And I said, on my dime, on my, on my dime, even though you're wrong. And so everybody says, my Lord says, screw them. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I see an opportunity here. Let's give them something real good. Uh, and I told my team, look, there's no money, but, you know, there will be money if, I, if my head is in the right place because I'm sensing a possibility. So we gave them something really good, and the woman was there. She looked like Maggie DeMond from the Marksburg, big woman, 65. <laughs> and she happened to be a multi-billionaire, from herself, that no, you know, just for, and she looked at me smiling, and there was a connection she had with me. It's still kind of a disturbing thing, you know, because I don't know why she looked at me this certain way, but uh, 
we signed off on the on the contract and lawsuit over. And then ten lawyers come up to me because Miss Roberts would like to take you to dinner uh, if you're available tonight. I go, wow, really? After this, but I'm thinking, yeah, sure, well, let's go to dinner. Okay. Next thing I know, I'm making a ten million dollar movie. I have, and which should not have been. I feel bad about it, but I know she could write it off. But it should have been two million. But because she kept going, and no matter what, the monster outfit had to be air conditioned. She'd walk around showing a picture of the million dollar monster, saying, "This is my monster," and then a picture of me go, "This is my baby." So it was really difficult to direct that. And I remember going, and this went on for about fifteen years until she died. But we had a business company together. It was a very make a very interesting movie. And a lot of people said, man, I've never seen anything like this. I went to my second father, who was a black gambler, once a gangster, and he's my kid, Bailey's uh, godfather, but he passed away. I said, Ray, Ray, I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't think this is a good idea, because I think this could end up being very painful to me, because this woman's weird. Did you want to make movies, right? Yeah, but this is, this is weird. I think she might have the hots for me, and that's never going to happen. <laughs> and I don't, I don't I feel, it's weird having her look over my shoulder as I'm trying to direct and, you know, and he goes, well, can I meet her? And I said, yeah, sure. So we had dinner and he, and he said, Christopher, I like her, smart businesswoman. And the chances of you meeting her in Vegas odds are one in three billion. So that means it had to happen for a reason. And I see she does a lot of charity and you do a lot of charity. If anybody can handle this, you can so I took that. I don't know if it was still a good decision, but, but I did. And after that experience, I said, no more. I, I, I just, I'm going to do education. I'm going to help young people. And then I get, I get another weird thing where I'm asked to be on an Alki David, who's a billionaire Greek guy for his dad was a booze runner. But he, you can read about him. He's, a, he's the guy that said, I'll pay anybody a million dollars if they run naked in front of Obama. He's that guy. Friends with Charlie Sheen, Andy Dick. And I get this call saying, would you be willing to be on the Andy Dick show? I said, I don't think you have the right Christopher Coppola. I think you're, I think you're looking for the Chris Coppola, the comic. We're different animals. We don't like each other. He's 350 pounds. He's good at what he does, but we're not the same person. He likes me. I don't like him. He's asked me if we'd do a film together. And I don't dislike him. I get it. But he makes more money being a Coppola than I do. So kind of, kind of annoying a little bit. Uh, just, a, just a little. But I said to him, he said, can we do a film together? Can I go, no. And I said, if we did, we would have to do a wrestling match in Reno, you and I. And I would be known as the professor. What would you be known as? The student? Good. So we have a good starting point here, but no, we're never going to make a film together. Forget that's gone. So anyhow, I get this call and it's Italian. I says, wait a minute. Whoa. Whoa. You're not, you're that Christopher Coppola, the family, that guy, the, the pirate, the do your own thing in your face guy. I go, yeah. And he's like, God, even better. Would you please be on the show? And I'm like, I don't. I don't think so. I guess is. You know, then my friends are like, "Chris, you're circus man. You love you Ed Wood. You love this kind of stuff. And you're good at it. You go." And I'm like, "Okay." So I motorcycle. We're there, and there's this guy that looks like Howard Stern with this young woman who's like 18, and I recognize the young woman and a very pretty, attractive young lady who is from Georgia, overseas, at the Republic of Georgia. Kind of looks like Anne Hathaway. 
And her mother had sent her pictures out when she was 16 to every producer in Hollywood, including me, believe it or not, and asking if there was anything we can do. And she was kind of pimping her daughter. <laughs> I wrote, she looks great. She's very photogenic. Just keep acting, you know, feed her. That's all I can say. It's a tough world, but, you know, the more you do it, things can happen. Then I'm here at this thing, and I see this woman with Howard Stern type guy who's 60, and I'm like, whoa. <laughs> and it turns out that he's married to her, thinks she adores him. He's no way. I mean, no freaking way. She's married for citizenship and the whole thing. And I go out to dinner with with Alki David and, and uh, Andy Dick, and I said when he left, I said, you know that? She sent her mother, sent her pictures to me. He goes, oh, I know, I know. I love her. And that's why I need to talk with you. I need to make a movie and she's going to leave me. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. I need to make a movie with her, Georgian actress, and with somebody like you, a Coppola. Like, I know, I'm not, I don't know. And he's like, I'll do seven and there'll be a million dollars. I can raise money. I can sell a rock. I'm a, I am a telemarketer, man. I can sell anything. I open up a shop. I go, telemarketer. I mean, I love this. I mean, this was me younger. Any way to make a freaking movie. I even took money from the mob. But that was okay. That was okay. That that was okay. I like the guy. Vinny, I'm on fire. Tiger, Vegas, Vidmar. I may be doing a film with him in the summer, but he's a character. So I can, I can deal with anybody. He actually gave us $50,000 to finish a movie out of nowhere, and we made money. And I said, Vinny, here's your money. for. The I don't want it. It's your money. I'm like, oh, so it's dirty money. I didn't say that. Well, all, my, all money's dirty, Vinny, so I have no problem. I'll put it into another project. But anyhow, so I'm kind of like that, but I'm tired. I said, okay, what what you need from me? Because I, first of all, I want, whatever you said at that, that talk really inspired me about film and art and music and, and your spirituality and you know, you know, all this stuff. And I just, I, I consider you like a brother. And I'm like, really? Okay, well, that's nice. Howard, no, Stephen. Uh, and, I, and I said, uh, okay, let me think about it. And so I talked to some writing partners of mine. I said, okay, first of all, vampire film makes sense because she looks like a little vampire. Her accent is very Georgian. Nobody, she doesn't sound American. So we'll make it a story that starts in Georgia, comes to San Francisco. We'll make it like a little bit of East of Eden, sad. And then I can, opera, we'll make it an opera. Then I can get my head around this. And so I told him, I said, okay, I'll do it, but it's got to be mine through my company. You raise the money. So he raised the money, and he's getting 50% of every dollar he gets. So, you know, I'm getting 50% just to make the movie. Okay, so I'm not making money. He is. off my, and, and everybody said, Chris, this is stupid. I go, no, 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 no. I'm tired of the dog and pony. I'm tired of having the woman, who, a billionaire, breathing over my neck. I'm tired of walking up the stairs talking to the chain. Well, I'm tired of having the gun in my face from the banditos. People have said, you know, your making of movies is more interesting than your movies. And I'm like, well, well thank you. I don't know how to take that, but, but, but thank you. So anyhow, this has led to me doing this, where I have now really more interested in uh, working with young people. I am very, very honest to my students where I say, look, you know, I've been doing this you know, 35 freaking years. I made 13 feature films, top director for America's Most Wanted, gave several shows for Disney and Nickelodeon, and Disney hated me. I don't even know why. Uh, they don't know me. But I enjoyed doing those kids' shows. I said, but I'll tell you this, and you have to really think hard about this because you're going to get slapped if you don't really understand it. 
95% of filmmaking is pure hell. You have to deal with that. You have to embrace it. You got to be comfortable in chaos. I don't sleep. Okay, I get one hour sleep a night when I'm working because my brain's working so hard. I drink nine espressos a day. I chew on a cigar for the nicotine. I knock out myself with the three shots of good scotch. And then I just get an hour and I go back to work. I said, so, and I, I can deal with any hellish scenario. The thing I hate the most is friendly fire. When somebody doesn't take the lens cap or charge the battery, who's part of my team, that's bad. That I, That's very hard to deal with. It happens all the time. But something like a car breaking down or a generator not working, or that that's just, that's part of life, horizontal rain. But I said, it's pure hell. And a lot, a lot of people can handle that. Not a lot. 5% is pure gold. Pure gold. And that doesn't mean all oh, the film made money and people are going bravo. It just means that you love it, you know, and just working with people. And then you just so happen, just so happen to have a film that you made together that didn't exist before, right? You started from the zero, and now this thing exists on its own right. And so that's the goal. I've had a few students now that are doing quite well who've embraced that. Other students that are annoyed with me, but then thank me later. But, <laughs> but anyway, you can ask me a question. <laughs> so after 13 feature films... Like, what's, what's next? Like, are you trying to make another movie? Are you looking to make the, your next film? Or is it more like, if it comes your way, you'll do it if it's the right thing? Well, well, that's a good question. I have two more films. I had five that I want to make before I'm dead, but, I, but I'm 60, so I'm, I'll be lucky if I get two. I figured, <laughs> my dad died at 75, and uh, you know, but I had a great uncle that lived to uh, 103, but, and he smoked cigars, but he's not, not sleeping. I mean, I... I, I do too much that's not good for my body in terms of uh, my work ethic. But um, I have two movies I want to make. One actually may be financed by Francis because he likes it. I said to him, I, I have the money from the mob to do it. He goes, well, we don't need your money. I go, well, I, 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 all my life I've been raising my own money, including the film I did for you. I raised the money. You didn't. And you took a fee, you know. He doesn't like hearing that, but it's true. The Western. I brought, I got Martin Sheen and Bobby Carradine and, and Johnny Rivers to write the song, uh, Hoppy. Before that, he was sued uh, when we were making it with just Cowboys, and so he shelved it. And I finished everything I do, so I said, you know, I want my phone back. They said, nope. I go, I nearly died on that film. If you recall, Mark saved me. I want my phone back because people worked on it. It needs to be finished. I finished everything I do. And he went, nope. And then 10 years later... One of my producing partners said, why is this thing, this is a sweet little movie. It's like an aw shucks 1930s Western, beautifully shot in technoscope, the same cameras that Sergio Leone used, poor man's widescreen. He said, why? I go, because he shelved it, because it's, it's, it's being, he's being sued. So he said, can we get it back? And I said, he won't give it to me. And then I said, uh, but wait a minute, wait a minute. His president, he's going to fire his president, and the president can sign off on it. And maybe if we go talk with the president, I'm not going to give a name, you might get it back. So I, I go in with the, with the contract for my company, Plaster City, and Zoetrope, who the president could sign for. I said, look, you know, I, I actually have some money to get Martin Sheen and to redo the film and get it out there. All these cowboys, it's a dream for them to be in a Western. Come on, just sign up. Like, you know, Francis is going to hate me and be so pissed. I said, you're fired. You know that. You're fired tomorrow. What's the point? He goes, oh, fuck it. And he signed it. So I got it back. And then I started getting calls from the same people that, that sued 
Francis. And he said, you know, what makes you, we scared Francis. What makes you think you can get away with this? Now, I have money from the mob, okay? And I'm like, well, you don't know me. Well, maybe you should just look at the movie and see how small it is and just kind of go our separate ways. And he said, you know, okay, we'll look at it. So I had four friends of mine who you wouldn't want to mess with ride motorcycles up to their little stupid little production company in Burbank. Two old guys, real fucks, sorry, real not nice people, <laughs> but protective of their William Boy, which I get. But I say, okay, guys, just go in there, show the DVD, never leave the room, never say a word. And they did that, and they were scared, and I never heard from them again. And I finished the movie. You got to do stuff like that. I have two movies to make. So one, Francis is interested in, but I, I got it. We're already at it. We're already at a different creative impasse, and he's Francis Ford freaking Coppola. He's a god. He's one of the most important filmmakers of all time, and I'm just me, Ed Wood meets Wells. I mean, I don't, and me, okay? And he's wrong. He's wrong about this story. So anyhow, I don't know. I don't know. I want to make it. It's based on something that's important to me, because my friend Nat Kelly Cole was Nat King Cole's son. We went to school together. He was a poet, as a musician. He died of AIDS. I want to do this. It's about his father and about a very strange white guy that lived under the Hollywood sign in the 1940s. He was a beatnik and a hippie before there were beatniks and hippies. And he wrote the song Nature Boy, uh, which became Nat King Cole's big, big, big uh, success and made him stomachable for white people all around the world. And this was a white guy who was weird. And it's a story I really want to tell. Tom Waits met him. He, he uh -huh. talked to Brian Wilson. And I added some fiction to it because there's always two truths. And the most interesting films for me mix fiction and nonfiction when you're doing a biopic. Our disagreement is about the fiction because it's about the video game business and how hostile that is in terms of how caustic that is in terms of uh, violence. And in my treatment, it really says that. It really kind of, you know, it judges. And he loved that. But as I'm writing the script, I'm like, you know, I work with young people. They play these games. There's nothing wrong with them. And, and if you're, if you're a, a, a woman, a young woman, who is considered the greatest violent video game designer, you know, why would she suddenly feel guilty? She would, I would think she'd feel a little proud of her artistry, you know, and I, I just not, it doesn't work for, I mean, we can't judge because you have to. I, I, who am I to judge anybody with that you have to inspire? Well, who am I? You're 82. That's what you want. But I deal with young people and I said, and they're going to laugh at me. If we do that same old, hey, you can make video games that make us good killers, but can you make us good human beings? I mean, it's, you know, it, it, I'm going to get laughed at. So, anyhow, I try to turn it into a wager. I wrote three scripts. He's, he's not happy. I'm not happy. I said, okay, look, I'll give you a fourth draft. I'll give you a fourth draft. You know, we'll see what happens. I like my first draft. It was very intense. It was a wager between a filmmaker and a video game designer. Then they become lovers at the end. And, you know, it's very interesting, very, very kind of cyber Eden, cyber paradise found. Uh, he didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, 
uh, that's a film I'm going to make regardless one way or another. And I told him I had the money and he said, we don't need your money. So that means he has the money to do it. If I want his money, I'm going to have to do it his way. But I, I just call Vinny. <laughs> Vinny. Come on, Vinny's, you know, Eden. Come on, nature boy, you know. So anyway, that's one. And then I want to do a remake. And I'm not going to say the film, but of a, a, one of my heroes uh, a film, a very rare film of, of his. So and then there's other ones, but I'm, I'm not going to get there. But I do get calls like from Vinny saying, I really want you to make six movies about me. Him, him. I'm like, Vinny, Vinny, I, I love you, man. I just, I don't, I don't. And he goes, well, do you like those movies with Dean Martin where he's the 1960s? He's like the spy. I go, don't, don't. Please don't. Don't say that. <laughs> yeah. I go, yeah, I do like those movies. You like that? Go, yeah, okay. Okay, let's let, read, let me read what you got. So I wrote a script, and maybe I'll make that this summer. Uh, we'll see. I also am weird that people know how to hook me. Like, I just did this thing, a fellow, because a guy, a Spaniard, who's an actor who visits San Francisco and used to be a pretty intense, not nice drunk. I'm a nice drunk. And we would have interesting battles, but it was interesting because he's very smart. We yell about filmmakers and great literature. But he's not drinking anymore, which is good. I'm not drinking as much, which is good. I might still need my you know, martini now and then. But he comes up to me and goes, Cervantes. I mean, what? What? Cervantes. Don Quixote. I mean, Byron, what? Film. Shooting in the actual locations. Byron, don't. I got $25,000. $25,000. Cervantes. Cervantes. <laughs> and so, okay, all right. And so I made it a class. He was bullshitting me because he didn't have the money. And then COVID hit. So I had to make a movie anyway because it was part of my class. So that's where Sammy and Quinn comes from during COVID, which is based on Don Quixote. And in my class syllabus said, you get to watch a professional director make a guerrilla film as well as contributing. So I didn't have, and so I had my two sons living with me, which was tough. And I said, look, guys, you can act. I can direct. Let's just go make this. And that's where that film comes from. But it wouldn't be because it wouldn't be without him saying, Cervantes. <laughs> so recently he came up to me and said, Othello. Like, no, I got $5,000. No, no, you got students. Othello. <laughs> so that's what I've been doing. We, I have one, two more days to shoot when he comes back from Spain. And then he says, Christopher, six of these, six, $5,000 movies. I go, well, that's stupid. It's like, no, Shakespeare doesn't sell. He goes, well, who cares? I go, yeah, I, I get that. I get that. I said, but it would only interest me, and don't get mad, Alric, if I had six women direct you know, because uh, I have six women students. Uh, most of my students are women. I said, you know how big that would be? Five, that I'm giving a shot to women directors that don't really get a shot, which is such a male-oriented male-oriented business. And I also don't want to direct them. You know, I'm tired. I, but they do. And I'm like, so that's good publicity. So I'm always thinking. I'm always thinking. Because they'll come to me. and I'll, I'm on lots of podcasts. And go, yeah, well, I just hire six women to make six movies based on great literature. And so I said, the first one's King Lear, and it's all going to be done with homeless people living in cars in Berkeley. And he's like, oh, Christopher, please, you got to direct. No, 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 I'm going to be in Vegas working with Vinny, going Dean Martin. <laughs> and my student, my students, 
will do this. Not all, they won't all be students. I have plenty of, of successful young women that it, my students have gone on to do some pretty, one won an Emmy, a local Emmy for doing a documentary in Tucson. I'm very, very proud of them. My male students aren't so happy, but they're very few and Frankly, well, one or two of them is really talented. So, yeah, I got to, you know, but it's just good publicity. Don't you think, Liz? Is that a smart move? Yeah, also, they're probably fantastic, just like you said. So, one for one, right? It's when you win. No, no, you're right. I would not use them if they weren't fantastic. No, they are fantastic. (laughs) So, if I have one guy that's fantastic and one woman that's fantastic, I'm going to go with the woman. Okay, it's just because it's a it's an interesting marketing tool. You gotta think that way. You gotta think that way. We have time for one more question and I get all right. it. All right. And I, I read in another interview you talked about you called yourself process oriented and I just wanted to talk a little bit about what you meant by that. That's a great question and thank you for ending on that. Sure. I, I'm not goal oriented. I believe if I give you one penny to make a one minute movie with your cell phone, you go at it with the same intensity with your process, the same respect than if I gave you $100 million. There's no difference. So it's the process that I respect. It's like what I bring to the table. I'm not thinking about how this is going to get me that. Now, I talk about the good publicity, but that's not the same thing. That's about, you know, making the process available and also keeping it going. But the idea that I teach my students is, I'm going to give you this one-minute project. You've got to think it, and then you shoot it, and you share it. We'll discuss the what-ifs, the missed opportunities, the what-ifs, the miss, and the clarity of vision. So I teach that. I say, look, here's a theme, isolation, okay? I want you guys to go out and do a one-minute movie in your, film, in your camera or cell phone camera, no pausing, no editing, all in camera, a long take which is one of the major building blocks of cinema, going back to Orson Welles and I Am Cuba. I said, but think about it. Think about isolation and then go out and shoot it and then we'll share it and you'll set the stage. So process means the clarity. You know, what do you think? The what ifs is changing the angle for, and the, the missed opportunities. For example, a student went out early in the morning, Fisherman's Wharf, homeless people, and the camera is doing a 360 and way in the back, you can see a dog. And you know the dog is going to run to knock over a trash can, but the camera just kept moving. And I said, that, that was a missed opportunity. And you need to be completely aware in your environment. That's part of the process. Aware, not thinking this, thinking that, but aware. Because I would have known that dog was going to do that. I would have seen it before I shot it. I would have waited I would have, and then gone, and as the dog is running to the trash can, pan off the dog and then reveal the homeless people. That kind of says it all, you know. I said, so you missed that. And no criticism. I'm just teaching you that you need to be aware. That's the process. And then the what ifs are like, okay, what if you shot at low angle, like the, the weight of the world is bringing everybody here, we can feel the weight, or high angle, like judgment of the people that have and judge the have-nots. There's all kinds of different things you can do. That doesn't mean it has to be that, but what if? How does that change that? So I guess that's what I mean about process is being in tune with that. And you do it because you respect it. You're not doing it to get the $100 million, a stepping stone. You know, you're not doing it for that. You're doing it because you respect it. And if you process or anything, my brother is extremely goal-oriented. And it works. It works for him and has been. 
because he was angry and he wanted to make more money than Francis and he's very talented. And so he was goal. He wanted to get out of our world, the Southern Coppolas of Long Beach, our pain of not being the rich Coppolas and he was angry. So that, that works. I'm not taking anything against it, but I was always more process thinking whatever I was doing at the time was the most important thing. I wasn't doing it to get to that. So that's what I mean by process. So we have a few minutes. I'm going to ask a couple more questions or at least one more. What's the best filmmaking advice that you've ever received? Wow. The best filmmaking advice I ever received. Well, well George Kuchar, George Kuchar, who was a very sweet man and uh, great in his own right film director of he would take people off the street and put them in his movies and make them feel like Marilyn Monroe. But he wasn't making a point. He was just like that. He would just, people would feel like that around them. So that wasn't really advice, but watching. And the fact that he had that kind of love, and I saw what these people were like on film, and he wasn't trying to make a point. It wasn't, it was just, I'm George. Oh, you look beautiful. Oh, you look, you look absolutely beautiful. Oh, we're going to shoot you now. We're going to shoot you. Oh, put the stocking over the lens. Oh, so glamorous, the stocking. I'll paint it. Oh, glamour, glamour. You know, and he was, I mean, so that was advice to me. It's like, you know, love, <laughs> you know, you gotta, it's not just love what you do, but share the love, you know, a little bit, because that makes people blossom. From a, from a Hollywood standpoint, <laughs> I, uh, well, from Francis's point, but he's an artist, was always, you know, do what you love. Be, it should be personal. It should be something that comes from your heart, which is kind of obvious. I mean, you know, I'm sorry. I, I, I think what I learned from Hollywood is, is hard work. And that's not, that's something you cannot take away from Hollywood. It's incredibly hard work. And I will say most producers, if they had a choice between someone that works very, very hard, doesn't complain, and has a modicum of talent, and somebody who won't lift a finger and has a lot of talent, they'll go with the person with the modicum of talent because it's hard work. Quick, I've learned from that. I've learned to really respect and appreciate the work ethic of filmmaking. And I don't like it when I don't see it. <laughs> you know, I, I usually fire people right off the bat. And to give you a quick example, I was a production assistant for Francis at Hollywood General, uh, American Zotrop LA, when he, he was doing one from the heart. And I was just a PA. I was getting 300 bucks in a, a week. I had two cell phones. I was on call 24-7, which meant I had to go to the airport to pick up Nastasia Kinski or something, which would have been great. Did, that didn't happen. I had a little crush on her back then. But I was working with this guy from Oklahoma. He was this big guy that he just needed a job. Okay, he could have been working at Beacons. He didn't get it, but he worked his butt off. And I worked with him. I was the young guy. We were lifting, you know, desks to other offices when people would come in with their movie. And we worked hard. Then there were all these little student filmmakers from USC, UCLA, <laughs> in the coffee room, drinking espresso, making fun of Oklahoma. Never made fun of me because I'm family, but uh, made fun of him. And they were talking about their next picture. Oh, it's going to be a puppet, uh, a, a, a puppet mystery, dangling puppet. Oh, beautiful. And so they're talking about that, but making fun of Oklahoma the whole time. I even had to feed my cousins during that. I was a waiter with a bow tie. And I remember one of them went, hey, hey, waiter, another plate. And I went, and, I, and I'm like, got to do my job, you know. So I come over, take his dirty plate, and put it, 
another player there and I go, hey, Gio, after this, I'm going to kick your fucking ass. <laughs> and he goes, oh. So anyhow, that's, you know, you work those things out. We all have our own crap. I get my first feature at age 25 in North Carolina, doing Dracula's Widow for Dino De Laurentiis. I got Fellini's camera operator, Beppe, which was wow. And I'm looking for a production designer. And so I'm interviewing people. Yeah, it's a $2.5 million budget. And, you know, that's still a budget. And this guy comes in and he's somewhat familiar. And he sits down and he opens up his, I ask him to show me his portfolio. And it, it's good. It's really good. But I'm looking at his resume and it says PA, Hollywood General. Same time I was there. And I'm like, he goes, and you know, you know, we, we worked together as production assistants at those times. I go, yeah, yeah, no, I noticed that. And you used to make fun of Oklahoma. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. <laughs> so my, my point is you work hard and people remember. And if you don't, <laughs> they'll remember. So that's my advice as a, as a young filmmaker. And then, to th again, lastly, to think of it as an entrepreneur. I, I use this as an example. Maybe some of your listeners, this could be helpful. First of all, you have to find something you like. You know, like if you like Romeo and Juliet, you like the story, Shakespeare's. There's only seven, what, original stories. They all come from Shakespeare. They're adapted. Something, somebody said something like that. And uh, I know a great therapist, psychologist, that all he has behind him is the, all the works of Shakespeare. He says, that's all you need to know. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. But say you like Romeo and Juliet, and you want to make it, and you don't have any money. But you got to start thinking, like, okay, where is this kind of conflict in, in the world? Uh, and how old are you? Like, oh, well, I'm a skateboarder, okay? Or I'm a surfer. I'm like, okay, research that. Go to Huntington Beach. You, you can read about it. you got Black Fly, the sunglasses. They hate each other. Surfers and skateboarders do not like each other in Huntington Beach. Perfect. And you got surfboard companies, you got skating companies, you got all kinds of things you can go to stickers to raise money and to also say, well, we'll advertise this and that. And yet you got the money to make this Romeo and Juliet with skateboarders and surfers, which are big, you know, interesting. So it's just an example of like what I mean by being an entrepreneur if you want to make something bigger. Think about what it is you want to make, what's your heart, what's personal, and then start thinking in that bigger picture before you even start. So that's my advice to young filmmakers. Thank you. Uh, and just to leave people with, um, how can they support you? Like, shout out social handles, shout out what, you know, whatever you want them to rent first. I, whatever they want. I am happy. Uh, I actually started something because a lot of my people outside of school said I'm a good teacher for them, too. And I started a kind of a tutoring coaching thing. It just started, I had two filmmakers and they really got a lot out of it where I charged by the hour. But I say, it's not a teacher, it's a tutor, it's a coach. Like if you need someone and you're in the ring and you're about to go make your film, oh, I'm there to like massage you down and say, well, think of that. Maybe you should try this. And so uh, I'm doing that. If they're interested in that, they can go to ChristopherCoppola.com. It's still being designed, but I, I enjoy very much helping in that way. I get a lot out of it from young people and other directors. I learn a lot. It makes me a better director. So I can do that and you, you can pretty much find me. <laughs> um, you know, people like to call me the pirate of the Coppola family. or I, I consider myself the carny pirate poet of the Coppola family in some ways. My dad was a great teacher, the older brother of Francis, and he was a phenomenal teacher. He was my teacher, my brother's teacher. He was never respected because he didn't win an Academy Award, 
which was not cool because he was phenomenal, a phenomenal man, phenomenal teacher. Still run into students of his, say that he was the best they ever had. And Francis dedicates Rumblefish to him, mm. you know, to his older brother, his first and wisest teacher. So I really, I really love teaching. I do it to, to, to honor him. But I think it's one of the most noble things that you could possibly be helping to helping to help the spark of another person, the creative spark, and get them to believe that they can do it. And so, yeah, I'm doing that. If any of your young filmmakers want some <laughs> massage, you know, and, and get their courage up, ready to do the box, okay? I'm good, I'm good for that. Ulrich, what do you remember about our chat with Christopher Coppola? <laughs> well, I remember that he sounded just like his brother. Yeah. Nicholas Cage, like in cadence and almost in, in tone, too. <laughs> it's just, it was so interesting, like how he kind of has very similar mannerisms to his brother. And uh, yeah, you know, like we had like, you know, some really nice emails with him leading up to this conversation. He sent some really nice, like some videos and stuff for us to check out, you know, and I, I thought I had an idea of how this conversation was going to go. But then when it started, it was completely not what I was expecting at all. I mean, if you listen to this, I mean, we didn't ask a question for at least 30 minutes. Like, he just talked. He just went. And it was it was um, un, um, unbelievable. Yeah, I always, whenever anyone mentions the mob, I always feel like, oh, yeah, the mob's probably still around. I thought they were gone, but I guess they're probably still around. That's interesting. Anyways, what did you take away from this? <laughs> I think you and I had the same reaction to Christopher. I think he is a powerhouse. He is, he took the conversation by storm. And what we always keep saying when we relay the conversation with Christopher to other people is we say, it felt like it had no direction at the beginning, but then all threads of the stories he told came together in like this beautiful, like tapestry. I don't even know. It's like, there was this moment where... (laughs) Everything coalesced and you're like, oh, this all makes sense. And it isn't just a favorite word of the day, tangents. These aren't just tangents, but these are um, all interwoven into a larger story. So I was really impressed by him. And I also, uh, yes, just enjoyed hearing the dulcet tones of a Coppola voice. It was beautiful. And he, I like how much he cares about supporting young emerging artists. So thank you, Christopher, for doing the good work. Yeah, totally. It's also interesting to hear like... Like, you think, you're like, oh, my God, being part, a part of the Coppola family, like, how amazing would that be? How, like, wonderful. And then, like, like hearing him say, what did, he, what did the phrase he used? He was like, yeah, you know, if I don't win an Oscar, no one cares in my family. Like, you have to, you have, that's, like, the barometer <laughs> that, that they're at, you know? And so it's like, oh, wow, I could, I could imagine that kind of pressure or that kind of reality of the situation would be tough to, to work on, especially if you're a genre filmmaker just making fun, crazy genre movies. Like, you know, I'd be like, oh, wait, so none of this matters? Okay. <laughs> but yeah, we, we also have a really interesting article this week. This one is from Deadline, written by Anthony de, de Alessandro. It's about James Gray, who's a director of a film called Armageddon Time, which I've never heard of. He made some statements about the need for studios to be willing to lose money on an art house division, which like used to happen. Like Sony Classics used to be a thing. I don't think Sony Classics is around anymore. But he thinks, like, if we don't go back to this, we're going to risk losing future godfathers and future quotable classics that we have now. But, like, you know, in, in today's marketplace, th- we're not providing the necessary funds for those movies to exist. Like, we're just putting movies in franchises. We're just putting movies into, like, superhero mo- mo- movies. We're just putting money into franchises. We're just putting money into superhero films. 
and we're not really focusing on like these little these other movies that could be like the next wave of classics that and like right now nothing is quotable as being created you know which i don't know if i necessarily agree with 100 percent, but i i see his perspective um is there anything i'm missing here about this article any details that uh you know i'm glazing over in my description well, he talks a little bit about the importance of theatrical support of these titles, because his argument is that right. if you have a at least a window of theatrical before a film is released digitally, that that seems to mean more viewership and more dollars. But I would, I would say, well, of course it does. I mean, it means more advertising. It means, you know, you get placed in certain buckets and VOD platforms that say day and date or that say box office favorites or whatever it is, like you actually get like corporate favoritism that comes from doing a theatrical release. So I think that's kind of a a moot point. But I do agree that, of course, of course, we should be spending money on movies that aren't tentpole films. This is an argument that people have been making forever. There was this great article that came out a few years ago that comes up every now on the show about the mid-tier or middle class film, you know, like the late 90s, David Lynch, Jonathan Demme, you know, whatever movies that have disappeared from the marketplace, really wish that studios would invest more in those. And I agree that art should be a public good. We should be encouraging and supporting cultural enrichment. But I also understand that if I were a distributor, I would just distribute the things that make the most amount of money. Because content is being devalued and people are no longer paying for content. And so sorry, I know people hate when movies are being called content. Art is being devalued and (laughs) people are no longer valuing it properly. So I get it. I get it both ways. I think I think most filmmakers would agree with someone like James Gray saying that they want their films to be funded and they want their films to be supported if they're not tentpole creators. Yeah, I, I don't really like this reference they used to Firestarter, though, because they were saying, oh, like, Firestarter didn't have a theatrical run. It just was, like, really streaming. But it got terrible reviews. I, re- I, I read the review, and I was like, oh, well, I would normally be, like, all over watching this. I might even, like, get a Peacock subscription just to watch it. But, like, oh, it got a terrible review. I don't want to watch a Stephen King thing that's not good. So, pass. <laughs> you know? Oh, it was a bad and example. And I'm sure that's... Yeah, for It sure. was a very bad example. You got to like compare it to like something like, I don't know, like, like, don't look up, you know, like that was like a really great, you know, movie that was like, you know, straight to streaming, although maybe it did have a weak theatrical for Netflix. I'm not sure because they, they do that often with their movies. But anyways, my point is, I think that this is a little bit of malarkey because streaming is very popular and people do watch movies on streaming like crazy and streaming is very successful. And I mean, there's lots of metrics to prove that, you know. You know, I'm not saying that theatrical is like bad or like we don't need theatrical or whatever, but I'm just saying that like, you know, when it comes to especially indie filmmakers like us on our level, like the theatrical release is not profitable. Like you don't make money like, you know, by doing a theatrical release unless you're a bigger movie. So for us, like, why do we even want theatrical releases? Like, you know, I was asking my uh, my producer and he was like, yeah, if if they offer us a theatrical, we might want to turn it down just to like, you know, capitalize more on, on the streaming market and actually make more money and not lose such a big percentage to the, to the theater, you know, and, and that's assuming that you have a successful theatrical release because a lot of times these movies come out, especially small ones like ours, and like no one goes to see them because no one knows what they who they are or what they are. We don't have a star in our movie, you know, so 
I don't know. I feel like like what he's saying is like again for like the select few movies that are big enough and and have stars and have some sort of backing by some production company or some small studio or whatever and like you know those are the movies that like should be getting theatrical releases like the movie starring the you know Zac Efron's of the world you know like those movies are the ones that maybe benefit from this this thesis but i think you know the majority of independent filmmakers like us like we're probably better off just sticking on streaming you know what we do need i agree but what we do need is marketing support it doesn't need to be theatrical That's support true. it needs marketing support i just think it's funny that he references the godfather sean's watching that horrible he likes it but that horrible paramount plus tv show the offer oh is is it really bad well i can't stand it but now i'm gonna get in trouble for saying that <laughs> and, and but it's like they keep saying over and over again the godfather is the most popular book in america and it's like i think this argument i mean it's like the godfather is based off of incredibly popular ip i wouldn't right. differentiate it that much from a really great graphic novel, you know. With yeah, like Hunger really, Games or something. Right. I mean, it's there's a lot of substance. There's a lot of depth. It's a great story. I'm not saying it's vapid. I'm saying it. there's a lot of substance there. But it's still popular. It's not like you're bringing up this esoteric movie about Inland Empire where there's a musical sequence and David Lynch never sums up a thesis for the entire movie for all, you know, two hours. Okay. So, but, but I think we can agree that Oh, that's a good point. We want indie films to be supported. That's that's what I'm taking away from this. And I think that's what James Gray right. is trying to say, but just not as eloquently as we want him to. Yeah, because everything that's getting... It's, they are still following the Godfather model of like making movies about books, like bestsellers and everything. That That is always happening, has always yeah. happened, and will always happen. You know, So that definitely... Yeah, maybe that's not the best example. <laughs> I'm trying to think of like what is a great example, like Easy Easy Rider, Raging, Raging Bull. No, Easy Rider is that a, that's the book, Easy Rider, Raging Bull. But Easy Rider is the movie. Maybe that's a good example. Like we're not really making yeah. Easy Rider type movies Just these days. Maverick filmmakers, you know, making films with less plot but still exploring subcultures and themes that are interesting. I'd argue that people are making those movies. They're just not being seen by people. Yeah, and they're not being marketed <laughs> properly. A hundred percent. hundred percent. Interesting, interesting. All right, what do we got next, Liz? What's up? What's up here? This week, we have a letter from longtime listener Andrew Bear, and we're going to share it with you. So Andrew writes, Hey, Auric Liz and the MMIH team. My name is Andrew, and I'm an independent producer in the Los Angeles area. I actually wrote to Timothy Plain four years ago in April 2018 when I was fundraising for my first feature asking to come onto the podcast. After four grueling years later, I'm proud to let you know I've completed my first micro-budget feature, Space Waves, releasing June 21st, 2022 on iTunes, Amazon, Google Play, and YouTube Movies. Hooray! Just to say it again, the movie's called Space Waves. That's not Andrew, that's me. That's Liz. Back to Andrew. (laughs) Thanks for being the podcast that inspired me to take that first leap of faith. You are all doing important work. I can send you the screener if you'd like. I'd love to come on your podcast as a guest and share what I've learned during the process. Here's a little bit about the film. I'm going to, I'm going to save. Yeah, that. stop. Yeah, yeah, save it. Say anymore. <laughs> I mean, I wanted to give him a little bit of a shout out just to like, be like, hey, you know, like, here's the movie, Space Waves, blah, blah, blah. The trailer is on YouTube. So just type in Space Waves official trailer, Andrew Gabriel, and you'll find it right away. Yeah. But yeah, what did you want to say about this, Liz? Well, I just want to celebrate Andrew for getting his film up the ground. I think it's funny that April 2018 was when we were shooting Speed of Life. So right when he was starting his fundraising, we were on set 
And I imagine he went through a lot fundraising and then going through a pandemic trying to get his first film off the ground. I think there's a story there, but I love that he stuck with it. So I wanted to congratulate him. Yeah, I just thought it was really awesome that we had another listener who, you know, listened years and years ago. Like before they made their feature, they went out, made their feature, and now it's done. It's getting out into the world. It's being released. And I just think that's so cool. And I love to hear these stories, you know? And I mean, will we have Andrew on the show? I'm not sure. But, you know, either way, I feel like just this is a really cool thing. And it just makes me really happy to see, you know, that it's like, yeah, he stuck with it. He did it. He made it happen. It's like, you know... Just like you're saying earlier about your script, it's like, you know, you, you power, you power through it, you know, like you just, you get it done, like you make it happen. Cause like, I think when the going gets tough, like a lot of people just decide, oh, the movie's not good enough. It's not like I can't come up with a better idea. And I think what the real truth is, is like you just got to the hard part of, of the, the writing process or the hard part of the, of the development process. And it's like, you got to break through that, that wall to get to actually getting the movie made, you know? And so it's like, don't get scared when it gets hard. When it gets hard, that means that you've got something worth working on, you know? Anyways, but thanks, Andrew, for writing in. As always, thanks, everyone, for listening. You can always send us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at mickeymoviesishard.com. And Earl Martin, we do have an email from you. We will read next week on the show. So don't think that we didn't get it, because we did. We actually also responded to I believe, too. Anyways, but if you really like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. You can also check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MMIH Podcast and YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Make sure to check out the International Screenwriters Association, the ISA. They are an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through a number of programs, including publishing your logline to a network of industry professionals, consultation courses, contests, and of course, their top 25 writers lists featuring some of their best writers. So head over to www.networkisa.org to sign up for free today. Thanks to Christopher Coppola for coming on the show and to a friend of the show, Isaac Pringree, for making the connection. Slight, 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 you know, offshoot. Isaac actually <laughs> lives in Alameda, was walking around, and he stumbled upon Christopher Coppola's yard sale and bought some stuff from Christopher Coppola, including a Godfather soundtrack on vinyl, which was pretty amazing. And yeah, then struck up a conversation, became friends, and then he put us in touch. So thanks, Isaac, for doing that. And I just, that story was amazing. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Weidermut, for doing the editing, as always. And thanks to our producer, Eric Toms, for being totally, totally awesome. Thank you all for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Um, note to Jeff, I'm so sorry. I, I waited a few minutes to start recording for my own audio, but I didn't say anything for 20 minutes. So I think we're okay. <laughs> um, but, um.